0: Hey, everybody, it's Emma. Welcome to pairing. Thank you for listening. Um, I am so sorry that we don't have a full real episode coming out this week. It's going to be coming out next week, along with the, the episode the week after that. So you're not getting any less pairing. It's just happening in a slightly different timing. Thank you for bearing with me. We are moving and as you all know, moving is the worst and between moving and I'm also I have another job again and so I'm like working and like a real person ugh, who likes that but so I wanted to give you something however to tide you over to next week and so briefly for a little while on the Patreon a few months ago I created a tier where the rewards were going to be mini episodes that were just wine-based and I I ended up changing that and, but I did make these two mini episodes that were only available to like one person briefly. So I decided to make them available to everybody and they're, they're wine based. And so I'm going to, I'm going to release these to you. And the first one is about pairing sweet and spicy food with wine. And the second one is about debunking myths about bottle shapes and sizes. So I hope you enjoy. I think you will. I think it's I think uh, there's some good information in here. And uh, and I will just say, you know, for those of you who are packing, preparing for moves, I have a couple of wine recommendations for you. Uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, it's perfect. It's perfect packing wine. And uh, Montepulciano d'Abruzzo is another one of my favorites for for, uh, you know, just easy drinking, low budget because, you know, you're spending all the money on movers or whatever, you know, buying new furniture, uh, you know, paying fees to your old apartment for, you know, supposedly ruining the carpet. Yes, I'm looking at you, queen. Yes, I'm looking at you. All right, folks, thanks for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine. I appreciate you. For this month and this inaugural mini episode, we're going to be talking about something that we basically never talk about on the show, which is food pairing. In all my years of working in wine retail, other than that one time that someone asked for a wine to pair with John Wick, my favorite moments were when a customer would come in and had a tricky or unusual food pairing question. So today I'm going to talk about two of the most common food and wine pairing questions What do you pair with spicy foods? And what do you pair with sweet foods? Let's start with spicy food. Okay, so there's a whole lot that can fall under the umbrella of spicy food. Since I live in New Mexico now, I've been eating green chilies like it's my job. There's also pretty much no limit to the amount of Indian or Thai food that I can eat. And you know me, I need to drink some wine with my meal. It's not a meal if there's no wine. You've probably all had the experience, though, of drinking a nice red wine, then taking a bite of drunken noodles, taking another sip, and all of a sudden that nice red wine tastes like garbage. The general rule of thumb that sommeliers will tell you is that if you're eating something spicy, you need to drink something with a little bit of sweetness to counteract that spice. Okay, before you all freak out because I said the word sweet, let's talk about sweetness. As I talked about a little bit in I believe episode two, as well as in some other episodes here and there, wine is basically a combination of four elements that should be in balance. Alcohol, sugar, acidity, and tannin. I cannot tell you the number of people who I've recommended a Riesling to, and they say, oh no, I don't like sweet wines. First myth I'm going to debunk. Not all Rieslings are sweet. There are some that are incredibly, incredibly dry. Second myth that I'm going to debunk you actually do like slightly sweet or off-dry wines. Okay, that's not entirely fair because everyone has a special and unique palate, but I remember the day that I discovered that I actually liked wines with a little bit of sugar or as we call them, off-dry. Off-dry wines are not quite dry, but not quite dessert wines either. The secret to these slightly sweet wines, they're really high in acidity, and that acidity and that sugar act in balance creating a sweet searing sensation in your mouth that just works with spicy food. One of my all-time favorite food pairings, not just spicy food pairings, is Thai food and off-dry Riesling. And there's all sorts of levels of off-dry, so you can explore and discover what works for you. I love the Kung Fu Girl Riesling from Charles Smith in Washington, Some even call that a dry Riesling, but I would classify it as slightly off-dry. There's a little bit of residual sugar to it that you can taste. And that usually ranges from about $10 to $12 a bottle. If you're feeling a little fancy, you can go for a nice Spätlese Riesling from Germany. We'll go into the German wine classification system at some point. Just know that Spätleses are usually off-dry. I also love Rieslings from the Finger Lakes in New York, which I was drinking one of those during the Spider-Man episode, if you recall. If you've listened to the show, you know that my other favorite off-dry wine is Chenin Blanc. Chenin Blanc is a little bit weightier than Riesling. It has notes more of apricot, pear, honey, and yellow apple, while Rieslings tend to be a little bit more tart, with notes of green apple, lime, and, this is a weird one, matchstick. I love a nice demi sec vouvray with Indian food because it's a little richer. demi means off dry Vouvray is probably one of the most well-known regions in France for Chenin Blanc. There are also some awesome, awesome Chenin Blancs from South Africa, so definitely check those out. Another favorite off-dry wine that I just have a little bit of a hard time with is Gewurztraminer. There are some really great ones out there, but some of them come off as a little too aromatic and unctuous for me. That being said, definitely give them a try. Just because they're not my cup of tea doesn't mean that they won't be yours. No matter how fervently I express my adoration for off-dry Rieslings and Chenin Blancs, there are still people who refuse to try slightly sweet wines with their spicy food. That's where it gets a little tricky, but also where you can get a little creative. There are plenty of wines that offer enough of a perceived sweetness that they can work. Some of my favorites are white from the Rhone Valley in France, which are usually some blend of Viognier, Marsan, and Roussan, sometimes Grenache Blanc in there, there's enough fruitiness and aromatic qualities to these wines that, while they may not have as much residual sugar as the off-dry wines, they can work. A lot of folks also like Torrontes from Argentina, or dry Muscats or Muscatels. Sometimes even a Chardonnay or a fruity New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc will work. It all depends on how spicy the food is and what your palate likes, so experiment. Okay, you probably noticed a glaring omission in that discussion red wines. Red wines and spicy food is tough, because usually reds are higher in tannin, and tannin and spice just do not like each other. But every rule is made to be broken. My old boss, Master Sommelier Brett Zimmerman, what's up Brett, gave me the inside information once about pairing red wine with Indian food. Rajat Par is an Indian-American Master Sommelier slash winemaker, and he insists that Indian food goes great with, of all things, Syrah. It doesn't really make any sense on paper, but I tried it, and by golly gee, he's right. He recommended a French Syrah, but as you know, I also love Syrah from Washington State. It's just a little more mellow and doesn't have as much of that black olive thing going on, but I recommend trying both. Also, a red Cotaronne, Cotaron are like the godsend of sommeliers everywhere because they're so damn versatile, and other Grenache-based wines can be really good with spicy food because they're usually a little lower in tannin and a little bit fruitier. Some Argentine Malbecs can work as well, and I actually love Argentine Bonarda. The classic pairing for Bonarda is goat, so try Bonarda with some goat curry. It's really good. Otherwise, there are some really cool, lighter-bodied, fruitier reds that have almost the perception of sweetness, like some Beaujolais and, my favorite, Schiava from Italy that's so light it's just a step above rosé. Oh, yeah, speaking of rosé, let's not forget about rosé. I think rosés can be another great pairing for spicy food because, again, even though most of them are dry nowadays, there's often just a slight perception of sweetness to them. Ugh, I can't wait for it to be rosé season already. And, Last suggestion, sparkling wine. Sparkling wine often has a fair amount of residual sugar that is counterbalanced by the bubbles, and they can work really well with spicy food as well. One of my old bosses used to love pairing Spanish cava with Mexican food. Delicious! So, there you go. That's spicy food. Much trickier than spicy food is sweet food, because it's a little harder to break the rules here. The Court of Master Sommelier rule for pairing wine with sweet food is that the wine has to be sweeter than the food. Yep, that means we're talking full-on dessert wines. So, let me tell you, I also had to overcome my prejudice of dessert wines, but once I did, I discovered that they are fantastic. Am I going to be, like, guzzling them like an off-dry Riesling? No, but a nice port with some chocolate cake, or a sauterne with some creme brulee, Hell yes! Lay it on me! So yeah, the major dessert wines to check out are, as I mentioned, Port from Portugal, Sherry from Spain, Sauterne from France, Tokai from Hungary, Vinsanto, and Moscato from Italy. There are tons of others as well, but I think you've got most of your bases covered with these to start out with. I talk a little bit about Sherry in the first episode, and a little bit about Sauterne and Port in the fourth and fifth episodes, But those I'm definitely going to dive into more on the show itself, because there's all sorts of different types of port and sherry, and I don't want to get into that right now. But here are, in general, the types of dessert that I would recommend with these dessert wines. Chocolate cake, a tawny or a late bottle vintage port. Chocolate mousse, an Oloroso sherry. I just came up with that. I don't actually know if that's good, but it sounds good to me. Cheesecake or crème brûlée? Sauternes. Lemon tart or lemon meringue pie? Tokai. Cookies and biscotti? Vinsanto. That's a classic pairing. Biscotti with Vinsanto. Moscato is probably the most versatile and easiest to drink on its own. It's light, it's bubbly and sweet. And any of these drizzled on ice cream is divine. There's also this really cool dessert wine from Barolo in Piedmont called Kinato that's really herbal. It's almost like a mixture of Amaro and a dessert wine. So my general recommendation with dessert wines, try them out. A little goes a long way, so experiment and see what you like. Now, if you're one of those people who refuses to try off-dry wines, you're probably also going to refuse to try dessert wines. With dessert... It's harder to break the rules and not totally lose the flavors of both the wine and the dessert. But I have a couple of cheats. One is, as I mentioned, amaro's or other liqueurs. If you've never tried an amaro, it's a lique- it's basically an herbal liqueur from Italy that's a little sweet but mostly bitter. My other unusual dessert pairing is some Cabernet Sauvignon's with chocolate. It doesn't always work, but some Napa Valley cabs or cabs from like Paso Robles in California can have so strong a note of chocolate to them that they can work really well with chocolate itself, especially if it's a bitter chocolate. I'm sure that there are some other cheats out there, but in general, unfortunately, the sugar from the dessert is going to ruin the taste of the wine if there's not enough sugar in the wine to counteract it. If you really refuse to try a dessert wine, then unfortunately, my recommendation is Don't drink anything while you eat the dessert. Wait until you've had some water and your palate's cleared and then you can really taste the wine again. Now, this all being said, my cardinal rule is always drink what tastes good to you. If you want to drink a Chianti with some Indian food or some Sauvignon Blanc with chocolate cake, you do you. I'm just here to recommend what I like and relay the information that I've been taught over the years. I hope this inspires you to try some new things maybe broaden your horizons, and learn what you love. Oh, yeah, and what art and media would I pair with these things, since that is the theme of this podcast? Well, to me, Indian and Thai food are classic game night fare, so I would pair those foods and their respective wines with some of my current favorite board games, which right now are Eldritch Horror, Betrayal at Baldur's Gate, and Smash Up. Dessert makes me think of indulging myself, So I would say that I'd pair dessert and dessert wines with some of my guilty pleasure media, like, I don't know, True Blood and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Okay, I guess I pair desserts with vampires? That's weird. Okay, we'll analyze that later. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this first mini-episode of Pairing. Let us know what you thought in the comments section, and feel free to leave requests for future mini-episodes there. Till next time, read. Drink and be merry. Hey, it's me, Emma, and welcome to our second pairing Patreon producer-only mini episode. That's a that's a mouthful to say that ten times fast. Anyway, in this one I'm gonna talk a little bit more about a wine subject, which is kinda mystifying to some people, and it's kind of a, it's kind of an interesting one, so here we go. Did you know that you could actually learn a fair amount about a wine by the shape and size of its bottle? While more and more winemakers are quote-unquote breaking the rules, and you can't be totally sure, certain wines have a few telltale signs on the bottle itself. The most common bottle shapes that you will see are Bordeaux and Burgundy. Bordeaux, named after the wine region in southwest France, is straight on the sides with higher, sharper shoulders. Burgundy, named after, you guessed it, the region in southeast France, has a wider base at the bottom and more gently sloping shoulders at the top. Apart from designating that they may be from these regions, there are certain wines that often come in these shaped bottles. For example, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir almost always come in a Burgundy bottle, while Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot almost always come in a Bordeaux bottle. Interestingly enough, these grapes also correspond to the regions of Bordeaux and Burgundy, as Chardonnay and Pinot Noir are the primary grapes of Burgundy, and Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot rule the roost in Bordeaux. Sauvignon Blancs are pretty 50-50, because you can have Blanc from Bordeaux, the Loire Valley, California, Chile, New Zealand, or pretty much anywhere else, so you can find them usually in either style. Wines from the Rhone Valley, just south of Burgundy, also often come in Burgundy bottles, while wines from Tuscany in Italy usually come in Bordeaux bottles, though there are definite exceptions there, and we'll talk more about Tuscany in a second. Because the primary grapes of the Rhone Valley are Grenache and Syrah, usually wines made from those grapes from elsewhere will also come in a Burgundy bottle. The third most common bottle shape, and my second favorite, is the Riesling bottle, or the hawk, as it's called, H-O-C-K. I wish it were hawk, like a like a bird hawk, but that's what I always think of. You'll find that most wines from Germany, Austrian Rieslings, and some Gruners, and wines from the Alsace region in northeast France, these all come in a hawk, which is a slender, taller bottle with sloping shoulders. It's very pretty. I love hawks, but they're also a little annoying because they're taller and so they often won't fit on the shelf in your refrigerator. And so you kind of have to angle them, you know, on the door so that they don't fall out. It can be tricky, but it's, you know, it's the price we must pay. The origin of this name is actually pretty interesting. As Karen McNeil describes in the Wine Bible, as you all know is my favorite book, the British name for Rhine wine, hawk, is an anglicized reference to the famous village of Hochheim, in the Rheingau. At first, Hock implied a wine from Hochheim. Later, it came to mean any Rheingau wine, and later still, any Rhine wine. Queen Victoria is credited with the line, a bottle of Hock keeps off the dock. I think that's way better than an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Maybe that's where it came from. But this reminds me a little bit of Claret, which we talked about in the Hobbit episode, which... Claret is the anglicized word for Bordeaux. It's just interesting. So McNeil doesn't explain how "hock" eventually became more generalized to refer to the bottle shape itself, but my guess is that it's one of those magical evolutions over time. After it referred to Rhine wine, it referred to German wine, then to Riesling in general, and then to all wine in that bottle shape. The last bottle shape I'm going to talk about is pretty rare nowadays, but it is my favorite because it's from Tuscany, of course. You know those really squat, wide bottles that come in straw baskets? That is one of the traditional bottle shapes of Chianti, and it's called a fiasco. Again, Karen McNeil tells us what's up. (laughs) She titles this section a fiasco by any other name. If you were of a certain age in the U.S. in the 1960s, You remember Woodstock, the early Beatles, and putting candles into the round, straw covered bottle nearly every Chianti used to come in, called, technically, a fiasco. The word, probably of medieval Italian origin, describes a glass bottle or flask with a long neck and a bulbous body. Ooh, I like that bulbous body. Usually covered in wicker or straw for protection. Historically, both wine and olive oil came in fiaschi. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word fiasco, meaning a failure or complete breakdown, comes from the Italian expression fare fiasco, to make a bottle. How this Italian expression came to mean a foul-up is unknown. Some wine experts have speculated that the poor quality of past Chianti may be the reason. <laughs> That's funny. Today in Tuscany, one still finds old trattorias, or trattorias, trattorias, called Fiaschetterias. Fiaschetterias. Very nice. Working men's taverns known initially for cheap, hearty Tuscan wines and later for the homey Tuscan specialties that went with them. That was kind of fun. Um, you'll still see some Chianti sold in fiascos, particularly in Italy itself. When Winston and I were just in Italy, we definitely saw some fiaschi. Uh, but you'll even find some here in the States in your local liquor stores. There are several other different kinds of bottles, but those are the main ones that you'll see around. There are also iconic dessert wine bottles like Port and Tokai from Hungary. Remember, we talked about those in the in, uh, last mini episode? But in general, I would say 99% of still non dessert wines come in those shapes. Now, for all that, I often get the question Does the bottle shape affect the taste of the wine? The short answer is for the most part, these different bottle shapes depended on the types of glass and glass blowing techniques of the region where the wine was originally from. But, in general, if a Bordeaux came out of a Burgundy bottle, or a Chardonnay came out of a hawk, they'd taste exactly the same as they would out of their traditional bottle shape. There's also obviously champagne or sparkling wine bottles, which I'm not going to get into too much because I think we're going to do a whole sparkling wine mini-episode at some point. But as you can imagine... Those bottles are designed with a bit more functionality in mind because they're under a ton of pressure. Not literally a ton, but you know what I mean. The glass is thicker, the punt is higher. Oh yeah, the punt is that dip in the bottom of the bottle, which sometimes can be very deep, sometimes pretty shallow, or sometimes not exist at all. Again, the punt doesn't serve much of a purpose in still wine, and it is a remnant of older glass blowing traditions. Again, from McNeil. The punt, while it's tempting to pour a champagne by holding the bottle with one's thumb inserted in the punt, the indentation in the bottom of the bottle was never intended for such a purpose. Originally, the punt was a way of preventing the jagged pontil—I believe is how you say it—a um, way of preventing the jagged pontil mark, the point left over after a glass bottle was blown and shaped, from scratching the surface of the table by pushing the pontil up into the interior of the bottle a punt was formed and the table was saved. Huzzah! When mold-made wine bottles, not mold as in, you know, the gross stuff, but like a mold. When mold-made wine bottles were introduced, the punt remained since it adds stability to the bottle when the bottle is upright. With champagne bottles, however, the punt has an even greater purpose. During the second fermentation, which ultimately gives champagne its bubbles, six atmospheres of pressure are built up inside the glass wall of the bottle. The champagne bottle's prominent punt allows for a more even distribution of pressure inside the bottle, preventing the disastrous explosions that were a common and serious problem for early champagne makers. So that's a little a little introduction to champagne and the punt. While bottle shape doesn't usually affect the taste of the wine, Bottle Size Can You may have noticed that often if a wine store sells a regular 750 milliliter bottle, that's the regular size, um, of a wine and a magnum, which is 1.5 liters or twice as much, if they sell those two sizes of the same wine, the magnum will often be more than twice as expensive even though it's only twice the volume. Usually the incentive for buying more of something is that it's a better deal. So why isn't that the case for large format bottles? That's a question that I got a lot working in a wine store. Well, it's because larger bottles are considered vastly superior for aging wine. As Laura Burgess writes in an article for Vine Pair, which I'll link in the description, wine ages as air moves in and out of the cork, interacting with the flavor components of a wine. With large format bottles, you've got the same surface area for air transfer, that tiny cork, but a much larger volume of wine, The result is that these bottles age at half the speed of their 750 milliliter counterparts. It's because of this aging potential that many top-notch wines are bottled in large formats. Big bottles age more gracefully and just plain better, according to some experts, because they age at a slower pace. As a result, producers typically bottle a portion of their best blends into large bottles to see their evolution and mark them up accordingly for collectors. Because these bottles can reach extremely high prices, they've earned a reputation for being expensive and celebration-only bottles. Happily, as wine has become more mainstream and less exclusive, so have Magnums. You can now find great options in most small retailers. That is true. So, there you go. The bigger the bottle, the better the wine ages, generally speaking, so the price increases as well. Sometimes, though, you can find a great deal on magnums, and if you're interested in aging some wine in your cellar, they could be a great investment. So, what are all the sizes of wine bottles? The standard bottle, as I mentioned, is your classic 750 milliliter, or as we call them, 750s. Smaller than that are splits, which are 187 milliliters, or a fourth of a 750 and demi, or half-bottles, at 375 milliliters. Then, getting bigger, we mentioned magnums, which are twice as big as 750s, but there's also liter bottles, which are just a little bit bigger. These are especially popular in Austria, where you can often find a bottle of Gruner-Weltliner, Blaufrankisch, and Zweigelt in liter bottles. They also usually have screw caps. I often use this as a selling point to customers, and it's really funny to see who's intrigued by the deal and who is offended that I would think that that would be a selling point. It's just funny. Then we start to get into the really fun names. So 3-liter bottles are mostly called double magnums, though some people call 3-liter sparkling wines Jeroboam's. Jeroboam normally applies to 4.5-liter bottles, however, And a 4.5 liter of sparkling wine is called a Rehoboam. There we go. Six liter bottles are called Imperials or Methuselahs, if they are in burgundy-shaped bottles. Are you seeing the pattern here? Nine liters are Salmanazar's. Twelve liters are Balthazar's. Fifteen liters are Nebuchadnezzar's. And 18 liters are Solomon's. I'm going to link a little wine-folly article for you in the description so that you can check out those those, uh, size descriptions as well. I have no idea where the tradition of naming large bottles after biblical kings came from, but I'll be damned if I don't want a Nebuchadnezzar at some point in my life. So there we go. That's my little introduction to bottle shapes and sizes and what they mean or don't mean. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out in the comment section or email me at pairingpodcast at and let me know what else you'd like to learn about. Till next time, cheers.